Welcome to the latest episode of Friends of Sanctuary podcast. I'm Marianne Bartels, Chief Investment Strategist at Sanctuary Wealth. Today, I am very pleased to welcome our guest, Rich Bernstein, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer at Richard Bernstein Advisors, also known as RBA. Rich, I can't thank you enough for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. Now, Rich, you and I worked for many years together at Merrill Lynch. Absolutely. And you're, you're one of the strategists that was able to attain a very long track record as an institutional investor's all-American research analyst. I think you were 18 years in a row. 18 years. Now, you started <laughs> as a quant strategist. Correct. Then did quant and became a strategist. You expanded quant for international. Yep. You started the derivatives department. Yes. And there's one other department I think I'm not remembering that you might have. Convertibles. You actually yeah. did convertibles. There was. There was a time, right. And you accomplished everyone on your team, including yourself, was a top-ranked analyst. True. I don't know any other strategist on Wall Street that accomplished what you did. Well, thank you for saying that. That's nice. And not even that. You were named to the Hall of Fame. I was. <laughs> of, of the All-American Research Team in twenty no 2001. Right. After Merrill Lynch was purchased by Bank of America, you were at the firm for a really long time, mm-hmm. and you made the executive decision to leave and start up Rich Bernstein Advisors, also known as RBA. Yes. Today, you have about $16 billion in assets, if correct. I'm correct. Absolutely. And you're a macro-based research firm. Correct. So can you talk a little bit about what your strategy is at your firm? Sure. So, Marianne, we're, we're, we are a real macro firm. That means, in English, we know nothing about Coke versus Pepsi. Right? We drive performance of our portfolios through macroeconomic considerations. That could be size, style, geography, asset allocation in our multi-asset portfolio, something like that. But we do nothing with individual companies or individual stocks. And in fact, we test our portfolios. We say we're a macro firm. We test our portfolios every week to make sure that the risks that we are taking in our portfolios aren't, are, in fact, macro factor risks. So you actually follow your discipline. We do. Exactly. <laughs> we don't just say it. We don't advertise it. We do it. And and. Majority of our portfolios every week, over 90% of the, of the risks in the portfolios is macro risk. So we are a true macro firm. Very rare, actually, in that, in that respect. And I would agree with that statement. Now, if my memory serves me correctly, mm-hmm. when you became the quantitative strategist, it was very new. That role was very new on Wall Street. And you approached quantitative work very differently than Mm -hmm. most of the other quantitative strategists at that time. You actually created factor-based research. We did. We did. I I recall that. The other thing that you also really created was style investing. Mm -hmm. You even wrote a book about it. Mm -hmm. I did. Um, And so you are an expert in growth and value. Right. Growth and value, large and small, all those kind of things. And all factors. So today there's a lot of talk about growth and value. Can you define what growth and value means at at RBA? Yeah. So, you know, Marianne, it's very hard to have a definition of growth and a definition of value. People like to define them very differently um, and often very exclusive, you know, where you can be growth, but you can't be value or value can't be growth. We think of it more in terms of how the company 
or how the stock rather is going to act at a certain point in the profit cycle that that ultimately will tell you whether a stock is a growth or value stock. And what I mean by that is that the work that we did in the early 90s that you were kind enough to, to mention um, really showed that what drives cycles of growth and value, large and small, all these kind of market segments we like to talk about, what drives that is the profit cycle. It's not really the economic cycle, and it's the profit cycle. cycle. For those in the audience that may not know what profits mean, mm -hmm. it's really earnings. It is, exactly right. It's just the year-to-year -year percent change in earnings as opposed to the year-to-year -year percent change in absolute economic growth or something like that. And the reason why is because equities are, are based on profitability. They're based on GDP. People forget when you own equities, you become a partial owner of a company. And when you're the owner of a company, you don't care about GDP, you care about the profitability of the company that you own. So what you'll find is that the profit cycle really relates very closely to all these different cycles. So when we define growth and value, we define it in terms of how companies perform at different points of the profit cycle. So what the research showed long ago was that as profit cycles decelerate and you head into a profits recession, meaning earnings growth turns negative, Growth stocks tend to outperform value stocks because growth itself becomes scarce and investors bid up the price of that scarcity. But when profit cycles trough, you'll find value will tend to outperform growth because growth is everywhere. And investors become comparative shoppers for growth, comparative shoppers or value investors. So rather than try to go into the discussion saying this is how we define growth and value because you can then miss some of those nuances, we really look at it in terms of what kind of, you know, how stable is the earnings growth or how cyclical is the earnings growth and how will it perform at different points in the cycle. Now, you've created an interesting word in terms of your investment style. You call it PACIF? Pactive. 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 Right? Okay. So that, that's a little bit of a challenge for me to say, obviously. What, what does that mean? So PACTIVE, and we trademarked it, by the way, so don't get any smart ideas. <laughs> Um, but PACTIVE means the active use of passive investments. In other words, look, if you go back through time, Jack Bogle at Vanguard, his whole thing was you should never have active managers, that you should just have passive. And okay, fine, we could argue all day long, is that right or wrong? But what Jack would never tell you is what index, what passive index to buy and when. His argument was you just buy something and hold it for the long term. Now, that sounds fine, but what history actually shows is that if you make the wrong decision at the wrong time, it can take you many, many, many years to make up for lost ground. The one example that I can think of is that there are times where if you've bought small stocks, it took you 17 years to catch up to large cap stocks. If you bought NASDAQ in, in the tech bubble in March of 2000 or December of 99, it took you 14 years to break even. Right. So you could say long term, fine. I don't think anybody invests in anything saying, oh, it's fine. I'll break even in 14 or 17 years. So the decision of what to buy and when, even if you're thinking about passive, becomes very, very important. So what active investing is all about is figuring out, OK, even when you're a passive investor, you still have to be active. And that's what we do. So we are the active managers of passive investments. Obviously, we use a lot of ETFs. And so you get diversification and there's a cost benefit to that correct. as well, correct? Exactly. That's exactly right. I think, look, there's nothing wrong with active management. I'm a big fan of active management. We are active managers from a macro perspective. I think what people, the re what people miss is that a lot of active managers underperform because they don't take risk. It's not an easy game. If you don't take risk, you shouldn't expect to outperform. And so active managers who take risk 
tend to outperform through time. But the majority of active managers don't take risk. And so if you don't take risk and you charge a fee, you're unlikely to outperform through time. And I 100% agree with that. Yeah. Um, that's a very unique approach. I, I don't hear about that very often. Mm -hmm. um, is, is it something that differentiates RBA from other firms? I think so. I think, you know, as I said, we're a true macro firm. Automatically, that sort of winnows down the number of list of firms. And, and then we take macro risk. Again, you got to take risk. So if you're not taking risk, we can now winnow that, that down even, even further. And then when you think about taking, you know, being an active manager who's macro based and takes a lot of risk, yeah, there's, we are pretty unique. I mean, I'm sure there's a few firms that are like us, but not many. So, Rich, in all the years that I worked with you, the one thing I did learn is you had a very interesting style in how you approached the markets mm -hmm. and your thought process was always deep um, and always very insightful. So what are, what are you telling your clients today about the markets today? Because there's a lot of confusion uh, in markets. People are very confused. Mm -hmm. So what's the message that you're actually sending to your client base today? Right. So the way we're positioned and what we've talked about with our investors is that we are not momentum investors, right? We're not technical investors. We're not relative strength investors. And therefore, a market like we're seeing right now can be very frustrating to us because this is a very momentum-driven, very uh, technically-driven market, it is not fundamentally based. Now, people, when I say that, argue with me, and they say, well, what do you, you know, these are, these are the best companies. And I think people forget that there's a difference between good companies and good stocks. We all tend to think, we all talk about good companies. We don't really care about good companies. We care about good stocks. And these stocks right now are, are very expensive. Uh, their growth prospects really aren't as big as people think they are. If you just look at the data, you'll see that, that um, uh, it's not quite as rosy as people would make it out to be. And the way I describe it to people is that our firm right now, people paint us as being very bearish because we don't like those top 25 or 50 names. The Which way a I, lot of people are calling Fang, Fang plus uh, oh, kind of names. There's all kind. Yeah, exactly. But we don't like the, those 25 or 50 names. But the way I describe it to people is we're actually pretty bullish on about 2,950 names in the Russell 3000. That's a that, lot of stocks. That's a lot of stock to choose from. The menu of opportunities is really big right now. So think the way we like to talk to people is we say, think of the market as a seesaw. And the seesaw right now is tilted in one direction very much. And the market itself is kind of the fulcrum of the seesaw, if you will. And the excitement is not, hasn't been and will not be in the market. The excitement and, and uh, the opportunities are really on which side of that seesaw you're on. So right now the seesaw is bent in one direction, pretty high up. I think we know what's on this side. And, but 2,950 stocks of the, of the Russell 3000 are on this side, as well as every opportunity around the world. The people have become very uh, geographically myopic. They've forgotten about the opportunities around the world as well. So we think Actually, the, the, the opportunity set is amazingly broad right now, but people paint us as being bearish because we don't like the 25 or 50 names. So you have a lot of market history. This is not the first time we've seen this kind of seesaw action. Not at all. Um, but it can last a little bit longer than some people think. Mm -hmm. So I would argue that investors need to stick with their discipline. Mm -hmm and be patient. Would you agree with that? That's exactly what we're doing. I mean, we, are, <laughs> we have a very hardcore discipline. We're a macro firm, but we are not event driven, right? Most macro firms, you know, like what's the Fed doing? What's this with, you know, that's not us. We, we follow a very hardcore discipline based on profits and liquidity and sentiment and valuation. And we follow that. And so we are sticking to our process 
uh, right now the market could care less about our process. <laughs> so obviously there's probably parts of technology that you don't like. I'm going mm -hmm. to make that assumption. But are you finding anything in technology that's interesting in those thousands of stocks that you're looking at? Well, I, I, the problem right now for us is the technology is, is actually quite cyclical and is proving to be quite cyclical, but nobody believes that. So you've got this notion out there that technology is defensive. Unfortunately, the data don't support that. Um, you know, defensive sectors are proving to be defensive. Tech is not, but yet tech is outperforming dramatically under this sort of guise, to use my biased word, um, that, that they are defensive. Uh, the last three quarters, for example, consumer staples have, better, have had better earnings growth in technology. But yet everybody thinks technology is defensive and consumer staples are underperforming dramatically. So we're, we're a little devoid of the fundamentals on, on that one. That makes it difficult. Because even if you look, if you go down in size, like some people have talked about the market beginning to broaden, it's broadening away from large cap tech into mid cap and small cap tech. If you look at small cap tech versus small cap indices, you see the same thing that you've seen in large cap tech. So it's very hard for us to embrace uh, technology as a sector. Certainly, we're not innately biased for it or against it. But right now, we'd say, uh, you know, pretty much across the board, the sector is pretty extreme. So based on your earnings and profitability models, it's just not a favored area at this Correct. time. Correct. Yeah. I mean, there's times, you know, go back three years ago or something, we were very overweight tech. But, you know, right now we're pretty underweight. So let's talk about what you do like mm -hmm. and what you are investing in. So in the United States, we have a defensive bias in our portfolio. We're looking at things like staples and healthcare and utilities and quality dividend paying stocks. Um, that's typically what works in a profit recession. It's typically what works is, as the economy slows down. Um, you know, we're having mixed results uh, year to date on that. Last year, we had a great year. This year, we're, we're kind of having a mixed result. Uh, outside the United States, I mentioned that we think there's plenty of opportunity. Uh, we're overweight Europe. Um, most people aren't aware that despite all the things that people uh, worry about in Europe, uh, European stocks have the highest estimate revisions of any region of the world right now. So it's, if you're looking for earnings momentum and, and un under-anticipated earnings momentum, you have to look at Europe. Um, we're overweight Japan. Uh, Which just hit another special yeah. high. Yeah. In fact, what's interesting is Japan is keeping up with NASDAQ, but nobody knows that. Nobody cares, which is kind of weird, even in U.S. dollar terms, which is even weirder. Um, and, and nobody cares. So, so we think there's opportunities there. And the most controversial position we have by far is we're overweight China. Um, China is a, is a case where it's really a salmon swimming upstream. Granted, it's had fits and starts, but it is one of the few places where central banks are easing uh, in the world. Uh, profits momentum is gaining. And as we know, everybody hates it. So you wrote a piece, if I recall, that your job was to do your analysis and not have a, a political opinion. Mm -hmm. You you want to talk about and and you specifically address that with China. Do you want you you want to talk a little bit about sure, that? Sure, sure. So so the way I describe it to people is that politics is about what should be, right? I mean, this has always been the case through. You know, you go back to Herbert Hoover, his his campaign slogan, which I think is hysterically funny, was "A chicken in every pot, a car in every garage." <laughs> that was his campaign slogan, very catchy. But but it shows you about how politics is always about something better. A, a better world, a better economy, you know, whatever. But it's about what should be. Investing is about what is. And that's a subtle but a really important difference between the two. And so nobody's suggesting the Chinese are good guys. That's not, but that's not my job to opine on that. Uh, my job, plain and simple, is to get our investors the highest risk-adjusted relative returns we possibly can. And, 
you know, if we're given portfolios with restrictive mandates, and we have plenty of portfolios with restrictive mandates, you know, we have ESG portfolios, we have volatility mandates, we have asset limit mandates, we have all kinds of different things that, that we can't do. But if we don't have a restrictive mandate, it's not my job or my firm's job to put a restrictive mandate on someone's portfolio. Our job is highest risk adjusted relative returns we can, full stop. And so within that context, why wouldn't we look at a place like China? Now, people say, what about the risks, right? You know, like, what about Taiwan? What about, you know, Jack Ma disappearing? What about all these different things? Like, and my answer is, well, yeah, we know about those. And, and then when we know about risks, you have to look at the valuations of the stocks that you're investing in to determine if those risks are already discounted in the stock price. China sells at a third to a half of NASDAQ's valuation. NASDAQ is everybody's favorite. Everybody hates China. I think the bad news is pretty well discounted into, into China at a third to a half of NASDAQ's valuation. And I would say, Rich, because we've both been in the markets for a very long time, um, there's always a period where it, the, the news sounds really bad and you don't want to invest. But that would have been the biggest mistake yeah. that you would have made. There's many times in the United States where the news was very bad. Oh, yeah. I, well, you know, if you think about think about where we were, Marianne, think about it 10, 12 years ago, where people thought you should never invest in the United States again, that there was that there was no opportunity set here, that if you wanted growth, whatever that was, if you wanted growth, you had to invest in emerging markets. That was the big story. And here we are now. 10, 12, 14 years later, the United States has outperformed for 10 or 12 or 14 years. And now what are people saying? Where would you invest other than the United States? And they're ignoring, you know, the potential around the world, no matter where it might be. Now you use, I'm going to back up a little bit. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to interrupt you because your flow was so good, but use a term that we haven't um, really defined. It's estimate, you used estimate revisions, mm -hmm. that Europe's estimate revisions were, were outpacing. Can you define what what that is and sure. why, why you use estimate revisions. Sure. It's a very simple concept where, you know, we know that analysts follow stocks and we know that analysts are rarely right in their earnings estimates. So one of the things you can do is you can follow, are they revising their estimates up or down through time? And we do that. And we do that for every country you could name, every region. We slice and dice estimate revisions a million ways to Sunday. And, um, uh, we simply follow and we say, are more estimates being upgraded or downgraded through time? And so you follow that. You can see some cyclicality to it. Right now, what you will find is that the highest upward to downward revision ratio is in Europe. That that's where it is. Now, that's, that's pretty interesting because Europe has been cheap forever, right? I mean, to say that Europe, European stocks are undervalued is like zero insight. But what's interesting is now you've got this, these cheap equities or undervalued equities, I should say, with now some kind of earnings momentum starting to build where analysts are being surprised by, uh, by the earnings and they're having to revise their estimates upward. That's pretty unique. We haven't seen that. And in fact, it's leading the world. You're seeing more upgrades to downgrades in Europe than anywhere else in the world. That's tremendous. That's fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. And I certainly have learned through your work that estimate revisions, the direction in estimate revisions, leads stock prices. It does. It does. Um, let's dive a little bit more into international because mm -hmm. we're, we're, I don't hear a lot of people talking about it. And obviously you sound very passionate mm -hmm. about this. When was the last time that you really saw such an opportunity outside of the United States? Whoa. Um, 
It's been a while. I, 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 I have to think about when that would be. I, I think the last time I saw this opportunity, I was I was the U.S. equity strategist at Merrill Lynch, so I didn't get to talk about it even. <laughs> so it's Which been was, so it's been a while. In it's other been words, a while. This yeah. has been a long time because I think a lot of. U.S. investors are underweight international because sure. the U.S. equity market has done so phenomenally Absolutely. well. There's been no reason to take that additional risk no. um, and, and exposure. So I, I wanted to just point sure. that out. So, so there's actually, you know, through time, there's kind of an interesting relationship between emerging markets and venture capital, which are, I would argue, kind of the two extremes in risk on the on the in the equity spectrum. And what you will find is almost decade by decade, not quite, but almost decade by decade, you will find if emerging markets are doing well, venture capital is not. If venture capital is doing well, emerging markets are oh, not. That's really interesting. And and so what did we just go through? We've just gone through a 10 or 12 year period where venture capital was ripping, right? It was doing tremendously well. And guess what? Emerging markets were not. Well, what's what's everybody gaga about? Well, venture capital. And so that's kind of setting the table for this reversal where, you know, if you believe as we do that there could be more inflation rather than less over the next five to 10 years, clearly some emerging markets are going to benefit from that versus long duration equities in the venture capital space. So that's a great segue. Um, you have some very strong opinions about inflation. Um, the U.S. economy has seen inflation come down or has been a very deflationary environment mm -hmm. for a long time. Mm -hmm. And you saw that in, in interest rates. Absolutely. Peaking in the 80s and then going to zero. Exactly. And now we have, you know, interest rates around 5%. Mm -hmm. And you're saying that there's been a structural, if I understand your analysis correctly, that there's a structural shift that's actually occurred. Yes. Can you talk about that? Sure, Because I think absolutely. that's really important. So, so first of all, let's take away kind of the hair on fire news of the day. Is the Fed going to raise rates, not raise rates, and all that kind of stuff? Let's just, let's just forget that for a second. Let's talk longer term, um, which is difficult for people to do, but, but let's, let's do that. So we would argue that the number one reason you had that secular period of disinflation and the secular period of falling interest rates, the main cause of that was globalization. And the way we describe it to people is that inflation is not hard to understand. It's a pretty simple concept that when demand is greater than supply, prices go up. If demand is greater than supply for an extended period of time, we call that inflation, right? Now, some people say it's a monetary event. Well, that's true to some extent if monetary stimulus stimulates demand. But you've had plenty of times where you've had monetary stimulus. It didn't stimulate demand. You didn't get inflation. Why did that not happen? Well, we would argue the number one reason was globalization. What globalization did for 25 or 30 years was basically open up more and more and more markets. And what it did was it increased competition. We just kept having more and more and more competition. And we know, think about my supply and demand, when you increase competition, you get downward pressure on prices, not upward pressure. It's the, think about like, why do we have antitrust laws? We have antitrust laws because when you have a monopoly, you get inferior goods at a very high price. Not real good for the consumer. But this was like 180 degrees, polar opposite. We were constantly increasing competition, which put downward pressure on prices for better products. And that's what we saw through time. Well, as we all know, globalization is now starting to contract. And the United States has- and we're a, onshoring, right? We're bringing- we're, we're, uh, That's a down. huge, a huge story. And there's and, a cost- to that. Absolutely. I don't want to derail you because yeah, you're, no, 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 no. you're on a great but that's but that's but just think about what we're talking about here. Globalization starting to contract with the US at the same time has a massive 
trade deficit. Now, nobody cared about the trade deficit. It didn't mean anything as long as competition was, in, was increasing, globalization was increasing. But when you're dependent on the rest of the world for virtually everything, and my joke that I say to everything, is there anything you're wearing right now that was made in the United States? No, there is nothing on us. That is not my glasses, nothing, right? And so now as, as globalization starts contracting, you're dependent on the rest of the world, that becomes a very inflation, reducing the number of competitors. Now, when I say that means more inflation rather than less, people, you know, what does that mean? Well, long-term inflation is average about 2.5% in the United States over the long term. We're probably talking about 3 So that's not a hair-on-fire type forecast, but if you compound that out over 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 years, that's a meaningful change in the economy and a meaningful change in the financial markets. So we think the long-term growth stories, getting to your point about onshoring and everything, are changing from investment themes centered around, which I derisively call cute wiener dogs in the metaverse, <laughs> to real productive assets, that that's really where we're going. And so because anything that benefits or fights inflation is going to be a big beneficiary of this, of this theme. You use the word onshoring. 100%. That's exactly where we're going to, that's part of it. But we know the US economy is less productive. And so therefore it's a little more inflationary. So how are you telling how are you telling your clients to position for this? Like what are some of the um, products that you have on the platform for any right. of our viewers that are interested in investing in sure. in this um, oh, what what I want to call uh, not theory uh, theme yeah, That's yeah, what yeah. I'm so, for. yeah, yeah. What, what, what would you recommend? So, a couple of things. Number one, in our portfolios right now, we're trying to balance the cyclical versus the secular, right? The cyclical. We're talking about sectors like energy and materials and industrials. They're highly cyclical sectors. You can't take the cycle out of out of this, no matter how we'd like to. So, we're trying to balance that right now. Normally, at this point in the cycle, we would be massively underweight those three sectors. Right now. We're actually slightly overweight industrials. We're just about equal weight materials and a little bit underweight energy. But you can see versus a normal cycle, we have a lot more there. So it's a balancing act right now. But for investors who can think, truly think, I'm not talking about like, you know, imaginary, but truly think five or 10 years, you know, anything related to real productive assets becomes very attractive. I mean, we have an ETF called the American Industrial Renaissance, um, which is part of AIRR. Okay. We partnered with First Trust. And um, uh, the line that I like to use for that is we all know ARK, A R K K. Well, since ARK came public in October of 2014, AIR has outperformed ARK. So maybe there's a story there that people, it's not sexy. There's no innovation disruption. There's not a lot to, to scream about. But somehow industrial companies are doing okay. Small and mid-cap industrial companies are doing just fine. And so we think there's an opportunity there. But just in a general sense, think about energy infrastructure. Think about utility infrastructure. It's one of my favorites. We all know, you know, California has the law, but, but uh, by 2030, 2035, all vehicles sold in the state of California have to be electric vehicles. Now, again, getting the politics, we could argue all day long, is that good public policy or not? That's not my day job. I don't really care. But I will tell you the California Electric Group can't support that. So is a better investment theme electric vehicles and investing in electric vehicles or a better investment theme investing in the industrial companies that are going to build out California's electric grid? At RBA, we're betting on the industrial companies that are going to build out the electric grid. Right. Those are just some of the things, you know, think about, you know, we're here in New York. Think about how many times you get stuck on the Cross Bronx Expressway. 
Think about all the 18 wheelers that get stuck on that all the time. When you're stuck in traffic with 18 wheelers, realize you are watching, literally watching American productivity erode. Think about if every 18 wheeler could deliver their goods in two hours instead of three hours in the entire US economy, what that would do for productivity and competitiveness would be huge. So that, again, that's an industrial materials type theme. There's all these different things that are going on. Think about the problems in real estate. People haven't even started to make the transition from services in real estate to manufacturing. You know, why do companies own their own factories? I mean, that's ridiculous. What an incredible waste of capital to build and own your own factory. So we haven't even gotten there yet, but there's lots of different things that are going to happen here. So what does this mean for commodities? So I think um, I think the story for commodities is reasonably bullish. Now, we have trouble holding commodities in our portfolios because um, a lot of commodity-related ETFs are sometimes K1 related and things like that. And people tend to shun K1s. But, but you know, it's the reason why we look at things like uh, material stocks and, and some emerging markets, to be perfectly frank. But, but I think- they're so sensitive to, to commodities. Absolutely. They're, they're tied. You know, in some countries, uh, you know, their economy is very dependent on commodities. You think of a place like Brazil, uh, formerly the one you would hold up there would be Russia. But of course, nobody's investing in Russia anymore. But Russia was a very, very commodity-oriented uh, economy. Brazil is, you know, they're, they're Australia to, to a large extent, um, although I'm not sure they would agree with that, but it probably is. Um, so there's lots of different ways to play this. So th this seems a little reminiscent, not exactly the mm -hmm. same, right? Because things repeat never exactly the same. I remember in 99, 2000, when we were in the middle of the tech bubble, mm. you were out pounding the table on energy. Yes. Um, and you got a lot of flack for that. Absolutely. But you were proven right, right. Over, over time. It, you think we're at a similar, not exactly the same, but a similar type of inflection point? I do. I do. And the reason why, the similarity between the two periods, you point out correctly that they're very different. But the similarity is that people have to kind of understand that, that um, bubbles are inherently inflationary. And the reason why is because you get a gross misallocation of capital within the economy, meaning the capital gets gets invested into things we don't need and the things we do need get ignored, right? Thus, my point about cute wiener dogs in the metaverse versus real productive assets. If you think about, you know, vacations in space, I mean, this is a good use of, I, I mean, think about, you know, that's, but that's what we, we at one point. I know I'm not going on vacation no, in we space. Have, at one point we have, we had, we don't need more, but we had four companies competing to go to Mars. I mean, that's what a ridiculous use of, of capital, if you think about it, versus getting across the Cross Bronx Expressway in under an hour, right? Which is more important for the economy? And so the misallocation of capital, allocating capital things you don't need and not allocating capital things you do need, it becomes inherently inflationary. So that's the similarity between the two periods. Rich, I want to pivot here. Um, when you were the strategist at Merrill Lynch, uh, you did asset allocation. Mm -hmm. Um, and asset allocation used to be it. You know, people were waiting for the strategists to do their allocation to stocks, bonds, cash, or if there was an, an alternative. Yep. Are you doing asset allocation at RBA? Oh, of course. We have we have many multi-asset portfolios uh, that range depending on risk tolerances and all those kind of things. I mean, if effectively, we have everything from you know super conservative all the way up to 100% equity. So you know, within that that spectrum. We're, we're always thinking about asset allocation in, in many different ways. Um, 
you know, whether it be stocks, bonds, cash, commodities, we don't do alternatives. There's no way that, that we could do alternatives. But within, you know, what you can get in the ETF field, yeah, where we look at virtually everything. So a lot of people were saying a while back that 60-40 was dead, mm. meaning 60% equities, 40% fixed income. Do you have any views on the 60-40 portfolio? I'm not sure 60-40 per se is dead. I think what's more important is what's inside your 60 and what's inside your 40. I think that's going to be the big difference going forward that people have not uh, thought of in the you know, before I use the the um, seesaw analogy about everything, and if the fall from the seesaw is the market, um, your sixty forty, meaning sixty percent in the market, may not look very big. But you know how you manage around that could be very very important. So you're seeing a shift to a more inflationary style mm. over the long term. Yes. So how are you approaching the fixed income side? Of the portfolios. You know, Marianne, I think that is the biggest issue. If we're right, and and we are entering a period of secular inflation, you know, 3% inflation, something like that, I think the biggest change in most investors' portfolios won't necessarily be on the equity side. It's going to be on the fixed income side. It's our view that over the last 25, 30, 35 years, it's been reasonably easy to be a fixed income investor, right? We had secular falling interest rates. The wind was at your back. One could have been a terrible fixed income investor and still done quite well. Um, and, and we think that's going to change. And because now the wind is going to be in your face as opposed to your back with potentially secularly rising interest rates. So what that means is, in, from our perspective, is one's going to have to be more tactical. Um, in other words, fixed income investing is going to look more like equity investing. The buy and hold notion isn't going to work because if we have secularly rising interest rates, buy and hold is going to be a losing proposition. So um, one's going to have to be very tactical, be very willing to significantly change duration, be willing to significantly change credit quality. Um, and, you know, the beauty of what we do is dealing in the ETF world is we can do that very quickly. You're pactive. Pactive, exactly like right. Like it. <laughs> exactly. This is where pactive really comes into play is on the fixed income side. Because look, the fixed income markets are still dealer markets. They're not exchanges. And and in a dealer market, it's no liquidity is notoriously bad. And so you you know, most fixed income managers cannot change duration, cannot change credit quality rapidly. It's a very slow, methodical quarter after quarter process. And maybe in a year or two, the portfolio looks different. Um, yes, they can use futures overlays, but most managers don't do that. And so what, what the ETF, what the fixed income ETF world allows us to do is make significant changes in our fixed income portfolios in a very short period of time, like a day. That's, that's terrific. Yeah. Rich, we're, we're, this has just been a great discussion. One of the things I like to do in the podcast is to ask each of my guests mentoring advice for any young people that happen to be listening oh. or viewing this podcast. What piece of advice you would give a young person thinking of coming to Wall Street or is already in Wall Street? So, Marianne, this this may surprise you what I'm going to say. I ended up where I am by accident. Um, I did not have a grand plan to say that I was wanted to be the chief investment strategist of Merrill Lynch and that I wanted to open my own money management firm and everything else. It all happened sort of by accident. And what I tell people is that Wall Street is, is always in flux. It is always changing, right? The jobs that existed when you and I started 
years ago, a lot of them don't exist anymore. The whole thing has changed. And so what I tell people is two things. Number one, don't come to Wall Street with blinders on saying, this is what I want to do, and I will always do this. That's the wrong attitude. What you want to say is, I want to come to Wall Street, and I'm going to go with the flow. Because the business is going to change. The industry is going to change. You want to change with it. That's number one. Number two is that in your career on Wall Street, doors are going to open. Right. Opportunity is going to present itself. And I think in my career, what has different, what I've seen has differentiated people who have been very successful from people who have not has been their willingness to step through the door and take that risk. Right. And and, you know, it, again, if you put on the blinders, say this is what I'm going to do and the door open, you say, no, I won't even consider that because that's not the way to approach Wall Street. Wall Street is much too fluid to, to have a, a set course of action in your head. So my, my advice always is be very flexible, be very open-minded, and go with the flow. So I'm going to summarize that. Wall Street has extremes, right? During the bull markets, absolutely, th things are great, right? You don't have to worry. But when Wall Street goes sour, <laughs> it, it can be pretty ugly. It can and be. you and I have experienced that firsthand. Absolutely. But what I've learned is that change can bring opportunity. Always and I does. think that's what you really, if you were to 100%. sum it up, 100%. Change brings opportunity. So when that change is occurring, look for the opportunity. 100%. That's exactly right. The one thing that I would I would kind of sum up with here is that um, I wrote a book a long time ago that was about building wealth. And the, the theme of the book was, it's actually pretty easy to build wealth through time. Why don't people do it? And they don't do it because there's always a siren song of something new, improved, better, unique opportunity. This is never going to. And, and just like with the sirens, you, you get drawn to that and then you crash on the rocks. And I think, you know, we all have financial plans. And I wish every financial plan would say on the front of it, in case of insanity, break glass, pull out financial plan. Right. Because when. We, when you have bear markets, people are under their desk in the fetal position. They don't want to take any risk. Well, that's what the financial plan is there for, to, to get you back, to say, hey, look, this is what we said we were going to do if this happens. But when you get manias and everybody's like bulled up 100%, you also want to calm down. And the financial plan is good on both sides. And I think people forget that. And, and um, you know, building wealth is, is not difficult. It's just there's always something telling you that you shouldn't do what you think what you were told you should do to build wealth. So it's about staying the course and having patience. Correct. hundred percent. That's a brilliant piece of advice, Rich. I can't thank you for joining us today that you, you, you always have a wealth of knowledge. Well, thank you. That I think is just so appropriate, especially for this time in the markets. Well, thank you. And I want to thank all of you for joining us here today. Thank you for watching or listening to the Friends of Sanctuary podcast. Tune in next month to be sure not to miss out on the next installment of the series.